When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. So I want to thank everyone that voted on our Twitter poll that we put this week about who our next Game of Thrones character case study should be about. The results are in. Everybody wanted a Daenerys episode. And in our longing and wish for there to be uh, more Game of Thrones, we figured we're going to follow up our Tyrion episode with today's episode, which is all about everyone's favorite mother of dragons, Daenerys Targaryen. It's really exciting. And, you know, we made that episode about Tyrion because we were missing Game of Thrones so much. And we were so grateful to get everybody's responses to that. We're so glad everybody enjoyed it and wanted a little bit more Game of Thrones because I think you're all in the same boat as us and that we are waiting with bated breath for season eight. Sure. And um, so we, we debated... A lot about how to tackle this. Daenerys is a big character. A lot happens to her throughout the show. So similar to the Tyrion episode, because I've read all of the books and Laurel is still in the middle of them, we're going to focus our analysis primarily on the show. Uh, I'm going to skip any recap. I figure if you're listening to this, you know what Daenerys went through and how she got there. And also, too much shit happens to her to recap it. Otherwise, that'd be the whole episode. And by that turn, this is going to be a heavily spoiler-filled episode. So if you are not caught up on Game of Thrones, now is the time. Go back and watch Game of Thrones on HBO and then come back and join us. Indeed. So without further ado, I'd like to kick this off with, if you've listened to our other Game of Thrones episodes, you know that I have a particular theory that the major characters represent a form of philosophy or governance or morality or ethics. And I think Daenerys being one of the most complex characters in the show, being potentially the hero of the show, I think this holds more so true than with any other character. Yeah, let's go. Let's go for it. So I'm going to start with what I think Daenerys represents in the philosophical sense 
where her mirror in planet Earth is from an ideological perspective. And I'm going to argue that Daenerys represents something called secular humanism. It is a philosophy or point of view that is relatively new and it comes out of um, modernity. So it comes out of the modern era. And a secular humanist starts with the idea that there is no God. um, There is no governing, ruling morality. And what now? What is stopping humanity from devolving into nihilism and depression? And secular humanism is a sort of outgrowth of that. Now, it's impossible to talk about secular humanism without first talking about humanism. So humanism, the philosophy that gave birth to secular humanism, comes out of the Italian Renaissance. So around the 13th century in northern Italy, people started reading books that had not been read for over a thousand years. And those books were primarily histories and philosophies of ancient Greece and Rome. And this started the cultural and um, um, period of time that we now call the Italian Renaissance. And out of it, a particular form of thought came about that was focusing on understanding the world in its material terms, using reason and evidence in history to understand humanity and then the natural world. This led way to a, a movement called the Enlightenment, And this led way to the scientific revolution. And all of these things started rooting in Western Europe from this time. And it sought to find reason as the primary way to understand the world. It's practical application to politics. It meant a few things. Humans fundamentally aren't bad. We're good we will more often than not do the right thing. In fact, most people want to do the right thing most of the time. They don't always do it. But because that we're fundamentally good and we're good humans, we're going to act in accordance to these um, more virtuous principles. I'll give you a pragmatic example. A humanist would also say that you must be involved in politics. So, a uh, sort of paraphrase from Cicero, who is a famous Roman um, writer, statesman, and orator, and it is, action without insight is harmful and barbaric, but so is insight without action. And I think this sums up Daenerys very neatly and succinctly. She believes in reshaping the world for the better. She wants to use the authority and power that she has to rule justly, She wants to be the good queen in accordance with humanistic principles. Other textual analysis that supports that. Daenerys is not a religious character. In fact, if you want to do some fun, Google what religion is Daenerys and go to all of these reddits and subreddits and forums. There's no agreement because religion is not actually a part of her philosophy. Religion is just something that exists in the world. She has what I would call a naturalistic cosmology. That means she believes the universe is governed by basic principles, principles that are understandable and principles that can be learned and can be taught, which is also central to a humanist. And uh, last thing, I'd say that she has a uh, an outlook that's rooted in magic, but magic is learning in this world. So I don't think... Magic is a sort of contradiction to her humanism. 
And um, I think she also has a consequentialist ethical system. So if you're not sure what a consequentialist ethical system is, go back to our last episode about Tyrion, because that's what the whole episode is about. I think Daenerys is able to weigh consequences to actions and try to pick the one that'll have the best outcome. And hence, she is the secular humanist of the Game of Thrones characters. Nice. Uh, so there's one question that I have after after hearing all of that. Shoot. Um, and that's especially coming from our conversation about Tyrion and his consequentialism or his utilitarianism in terms of his strategy and the way that he rules and advises. And I think in many ways, Daenerys often is... She's in need of that Tyrion-like guidance because sometimes she goes a little Jon Snow, right? She is so convicted and so um, motivated by what she believes is right, which is like ending slavery right now, living in sort of these moral absolutes, that sometimes her judgment gets clouded and she's unable to make consequentialist decisions. So that's something that I just wonder, maybe it's the exception that proves the rule with her as a secular humanist or as a humanist. I would, I would actually beg to disagree. Her belief in um, slavery as a immoral wrong is not a sort of sto- stoic noble virtue. She's learned what it meant to be powerless when her brother sold her to the Dothraki as a prize wife in a trade for, um, for the Dothraki army to help him retake the throne. So she has empathy for the downtrodden. She has empathy for the powerless. Yes. And she believes that the powerless have the ability to unlock greater power and greater virtue, but it is the powerful that hold them down. It's the outcome that matters. It's the fact that slavery is harmful that makes it wrong, not that it's a rule. Okay. Right? So not that it's like slavery is wrong just because it's wrong. Slavery is wrong because it hurts people, because it it doesn't allow us to unlock our true humanistic potential. And because it doesn't allow us to unlock our true humanistic potential, it stands in stark contrast to humanism, hence she wants to fight it. I would say that where Tyrion comes in as an advisory to Daenerys, it's really to help govern her passions. Yes. Because that's another part of her personality is that she's passionate. Yes. You know, but I would say that in all times, her moral system is very consequentialist and that very rarely deviates. I Yeah, I think I, I'm finding my way to understand this because Tyrion is consequentialist primarily with regard to himself and the people closest around him. And Daenerys, we're coming from a place where her consequentialism can be uh, can be interpreted more as a a way for her to set up rules for herself, right? They are more globally aware um, philosophies that she's imposing on the rest of the world rather than, hey, I'm going to try and get myself the very best outcome here. So in saying slavery is wrong because it hurts these people who are downtrodden and I empathize with them, she is creating a a moral code for herself that she chooses to stick by that is based in seeing human value and worth. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And central to a humanist is the value of humanity. It seeks to unlock the power potential of that. Like the Italian Renaissance and like the Enlightenment and hence Western civilization that has been birthed from these these periods, um, a humanist focuses on the individual as the prime unit of society and not groups. Something that Daenerys does as well. 
I'll give you a textual textual analysis uh, piece of evidence to support that. When she is in Marine seeking court and people are coming and they're airing their grievances and she's trying to adjudicate within the Marine laws the right thing to do, in comes a Marine noble who argues that, hey, you, you got to let me bury my father. He designed this temple. Yes, he was a slaver, but you crucified him. I would like the ability to bury him with all proper, you know, blah, 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 ritual. She starts to immediately fire back at him, you know, upset saying, hey, listen, he was a slaver. He crucified slaves to taunt me, kind of got what he deserved. He argues that his father was an individual who didn't want to crucify those children, who argued against it, and she allows him and only him to bury his dead because she sees him as an individual and that the individual is what matters to her rather than saying take down all of the crucified masters. Right, right. And because he asked, because he had the he had the grace and the respect to go to her feet and beg for that privilege and she could not only see hey it's worthwhile to give people proper burials but it's also worthwhile to give this person some closure in the death of their loved one. So there is an intense an, an intense moment of empathy there even though she knows that she is confronting somebody who has supported one of the most despicable institutions of all time, she still believes that they are worthy of uh, some respect. Absolutely. And we can look at, when we see her holding court, the contrast to that and other rulers. In Game of Thrones, only rulers that see the value in their citizens ever meet with them to hold court. We see Bran do it when he is Lord of Winterfell. Um, we see Jon Snow do it. We see Sansa do it. We see Daenerys do it. We never see Joffrey do it. We never see Tommen do it. We never see Cersei do it. They only kind of start... Yeah, why would they? They only start flexing their power when it suits them. Whereas Daenerys uses that uh, opportunity to see her citizens as individuals. And a really great moment of that was, how many more are there? She says at the end of the scene, and they're like, yeah, there's a few hundred. And she's just like... Ooh, yeah, well, this sucks. Yeah, this is my job. But she does it. There's something sort of performative and campaign-y about it, too, because the the people that you mentioned who don't do it, the common denominator is not just that they're Lannisters. They are on the throne. They are on the Iron Throne, and they have the power, so they don't necessarily need to keep campaigning. Uh, Danny is running for queen right now as much as she is for the people of Marine as she is for us as the audience. So we need to understand why she deserves that. And to prove that she deserves that and to gain loyalty, she has to make that show of respect for her people wherever they may be. That's a really good point because um, she's also doing it to prove it to herself. Yes. She's only ever conquered up to that point. And I do think it's remarkable what her her self-awareness about this is because we can step back and watch the show and say, hey, Danny's a great conqueror, but does she know how to rule? But not only are we asking these questions, she's asking these questions. She knows that she has failed to uh, you know, uphold the big, the big changes that she's made. She knows she freed a bunch of slaves and then left, and they all reverted back to slavery. And now she's conscious of that fact and interested in remedying the mistakes that she has made over the past few seasons. So she is a character who is remarkably self-aware and who sees her own faults and is interested in fixing them. And um, has a clearly marketedly different style of 
of running, a different style of governing, a different style of leading. She also, as a conqueror, chooses to go more often than not the path of liberator. Yes. Going to the people that are under a, an oppressed system and saying, give me your faith and I will change this system so that you are more free. And that has garnered intense popularity, intense support, and insane backlash yes. in her world as well. Because people that have power don't really like hearing that they're about to lose it. So they're going to fight viciously and cruelly against her. Yes. I, I mean, it's a complicated political world that she has stepped into and taken this agency in. I want to point to something that you were saying. I want to talk a little bit about the Renaissance and how it... Uh, how it kind of compares to what's happening in Westeros at this time. So the Renaissance that you're speaking of, of course, is the uh, it's the end of the Middle Ages, and it's a time across Europe where people are picking up books again and they are unearthing ancient works of art from classical Greece and Rome, and there is a literal rebirth of those values because we're on our way out of a dark age. Uh, and this is happening all across Europe. Literally, the French word means rebirth, where we rediscover old values of humanism, of respect, of beauty. When you look at art from that period, you can see the marked change in the art as they begin to emulate the ancient Greeks and Romans, who had a much better command of uh, aesthetic than the, uh, you know, the church painters, the monks of the Middle Ages who were just painting the same thing over and over again and didn't understand perspective. There's this huge change coming out of this dark age. Um, and what's interesting about humanism popping out of that and where we are in Game of Thrones is that Game of Thrones is a medieval world, right? So Westeros isn't real. Westeros is fantasy, but it very, very much uh, attempts to, to place itself with a modicum of accuracy in the, the European Middle Ages. And Daenerys, coming from another side, another continent, is bringing with her this sort of snowball. She keeps picking up armies by preaching her humanistic um, philosophies across Essos. She's snowballing down to Westeros, bringing with her a renaissance. She's bringing with her this idea that we can rule justly and with uh, respect for humanity, and we can bring back the ages of peace that my ancestors ruled in hundreds of years ago. So there's this really interesting thing that's going on with this, hey, is Daenerys actually going to usher in a renaissance and bring uh, humanistic qualities to a dark age that's happening in Westeros? I'm glad that you brought that up, because I think you're you're touching on something that is very significant about Daenerys, if we understand Daenerys as a hero, as a hero, pardon me, and her role in Westeros and where it mirrors in our own history and our own understanding. So most of the time, when there is a new regime, a new form of power, they need to connect themselves to the old to validate that power. Yes. Examples I can give of that. Uh, for example, Augustus, you know, taking the name of his great uncle Caesar as his name to say, I have authority to be the first Roman emperor because I am a Caesar. Um, the first Holy Roman emperor, Charlemagne, being crowned by the Pope saying, hey, I have the power and authority that comes from old Rome. You know, 
whether that's in ancient Egypt when the Middle Kingdom first formed and they claimed to have um, lineage to the old kings of the old kingdom that lived a thousand years prior. It's a common thing when you see this upheaval. Now, one thing that Daenerys does and does artfully in the show is she has created a narrative around herself as old Valyria made manifest. Valyria in Game of Thrones is the Roman Empire of our own of our own history. Yes, Martin has confirmed this. Valyria was a vast, huge um, empire that Extremely collapsed advanced. and fell. Yeah, and that had technology, or rather, magic, because this is a fantasy world. Magic that no one else had. Cities that were great. Economic boom. Yeah, you know they tamed all of the dragons and created this massive, massive empire that collapsed. And they call that, that collapse, the doom. Yeah. Well, and so no one really knows why it collapsed or how in the Game of Thrones myth, but Daenerys, as a Targaryen, claims lineage to Valeria, right? She speaks Valerian, Dothraki, and the Westeros in common tongue. She's culturally flexible. She's not afraid to invoke the Dothraki mother of mountains deity when talking to the Dothraki, as much as she's not afraid of invoking the, the seven when talking to a Westerosian. So she's learned the, the history and culture of those around her to create the narrative that connects her to all of these different bases of power. And everywhere she goes, you called it the snowball. She collects more power. Uh, I and think loyalty. I think one of the greatest historical representatives or parallels to her is Cleopatra. Yes. Yeah. Cleopatra, who was incredibly clever, who spoke many languages, who everywhere she went, people were in awe of, and who very nearly ended up ruling the Roman Empire. Didn't go that way. Augustus did. You know, I think Daenerys has this sort of Cleopatra-esque way where she's able to do more in a time when women are not enfranchised or seen as equals by virtue of all of these inner talents that she yeah, has. Absolutely. And, and she's kind of been passed around from tribe to tribe. She has made her way through uh, various different cultures in Westeros and Essos, and she has gained the support and the following of people who follow very different gods than she has ever known about or that she can ever understand. And she's made it her business to understand those things, which is why it's so interesting that she herself is not particularly religious, right? She uh, pretty much only believes in herself. She says this to Jon Snow in uh, season seven. She says, I got where I got on faith, not in faith in any gods, but faith in myself. And after everything she's been through, it's hard to blame her for having that faith in herself. Plus, she's a humanist. She's a humanist. The gods aren't really a factor in her her outlook. Right. And in fact, the gods squash the individual over the weight of having the individuals having to be in the faith, worshiping the gods. Individual and individualism, she sees as a direct conflict to her humanistic philosophy. And Daenerys is kind of on a classic hero's journey, isn't she? More than almost anybody else in Game of Thrones. Uh, the only other person that we could say on this show who is on a classic hero's journey is Jon Snow. Um, because primarily this show is interested in subverting classical ideas of storytelling and story structure. And sometimes shocking you or sometimes pulling the rug out from under you when you least expect it. 
Um, so you mean that in the Joseph Campbell sense? Exactly. Okay. It's a Campbellian uh, hero's journey that she's on, where there is a departure and a call to adventure and a road of trials and a meeting with a god or a goddess and a return having you know gained the ultimate boon to bestow that on her people. And it's hard for us to really say where things are going to end because we don't know. We don't have a roadmap from the books and we don't know what is going to happen in the, the final season and we don't know where this character ends. And there are all these justified questions about is Daenerys really a hero? Because we've seen some major changes in her character as she moves across Essos into Westeros. More on that later. So we, yeah, we have a lot of questions about where Daenerys is going to go. But macrocosmically and even microcosmically, so within each season, she passes along a pretty classical hero's journey. And I think the most clearly articulated one is what we see in season one, where she leaves the house in uh, Bravos or Pentos? Pentos. She leaves the house in Pentos. She's married off to Khal Drogo, and she's sort of this timid, meek little woman, and she finds this inner strength by passing through these rites of passage, finding true love in Khal Drogo, who ends up being her soulmate, by taking agency over that relationship, and emerging at the other end, martyring herself passing through this symbolic uh, baptism by fire and emerging as a new character, emerging as someone who has given birth to dragons and who has created new life through her symbolic death. She goes from little girl, she goes from princess orphan to Khaleesi. She goes from the dragon's daughter to the mother of dragons. And this is something that she continues to do every season is take the, the very little that has been given to her and transform it into something completely new. And that's why she's so interesting to watch is because her growth has been so tremendous over the past seven seasons. And I, I'm, you can have all your favorite characters, but anybody who says she's not the best character on Game of Thrones is just wrong. Um, but <laughs> I, it's a good thing I agree with you. Otherwise, I mean, I we'd have be to fighting. Say, from, from episode one, I was like, I don't know if I would really watch this show if it wasn't without her. She really, you know, just blew me away when I first met that character. But what's what's interesting about this hero's journey for Daenerys is that it is classically a male trope, and like you said, this is a time and place and a universe where women are not enfranchised. They are not free and they do not have power uh, naturally. So she's really very much playing against her uh, her structure. She is coming right up against what is expected of her uh, in this genre and in any story that takes place in a medieval world. But the other side of the coin for Daenerys, I think is super fascinating to put up against a hero's journey. And that's that she is constantly um, likened with goddess imagery. She's on a hero's journey while she's on a goddess track. So what are some of the examples of this that we can come up with? Go on, um, this is very interesting. It's super interesting, right? So so we can, we can liken Daenerys to uh, various multicultural goddesses of fertility, love, and marriage, and the earth. So she takes on this sort of earth mother role with Drogo, where she's becoming one with the Dothraki people who are like down and dirty. They love nature and they're like obsessed with their horses. And she, 
she takes on this role with, uh, with grace, right? As this, this mother character who is prophesied about that she will give birth to the stallion who mounts the world. And we see her pass through these, uh, these rites. We see her eat the heart of a horse and do these magical things. Now, because she also comes from this sort of mythical empire and this family that's very mythic, that is associated with dragons and fire, she gets that elemental curiosity as well, that she is from season one and, and forever on associated with fire. She is resistant to fire herself, so she has supernatural powers uh, that are very goddess-like. But even in the imagery of her, um, I'm picturing especially after she emerges from the pyre of Khal Drogo with the baby dragons, she is holding them in a sort of somewhat modest pose. And if you look at that image, it's very clearly a, a throwback to Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. So she's likened to Aphrodite, and she's associated with that imagery uh, coming forth from the sea. And so we get this little touch point to the Italian Renaissance, a literal rebirth after fire and being portrayed like the goddess of love and beauty. You know, it's interesting. I mentioned kind of in jest, you should try Googling, you know, who are Daenerys' gods and who, what is her religion, which I actually did, and it's fun. Overwhelmingly, what most people said was Daenerys worships herself. Right. She views herself, which I don't think she literally does. I think there's some misogyny in a lot of those comments, but I think the 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 the, the reverberation, the feel that Daenerys likens herself to a deity and likens herself to being above others. It's something that's present there. Yeah. And you know, it's an interesting thing. Kings, when they first started calling themselves living gods, that happened back in the ancient Near East in a dynastic period that ruled the area that we now call the Middle East in a city state called Ur conquered uh, most of the ancient Near East. In its third dynasty, so its third dynastic family, we start seeing the images of the kings wearing divine headdresses. If you know anything about ancient Near East art, a there's a certain headdress that only gods have, and it looks like just stacks of horns on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Well, in the third dynasty of Or, Ur, pardon me, the kings start wearing this headdress, and the people stop. stop start worshiping them in the artwork. And the thought process goes something like this. If I'm the king, I have the power over life and death. I can decide whether someone is dead or alive. If I say, build me a city here, I get a city. If I say, divert this river here, the river is diverted. If I say, lower this, raise this forest, the forest gets raised. Am I not a god? Exactly. And we see some of that in Daenerys. Yeah, this is all happening externally, right? So she is being viewed by the people that she liberates or by the people that she leads as goddess-like. She gets uh, associated with their savior. Uh, And, you know, we we only have to look at season three, the episode Misa, where she comes out and the the people of Yunkai that she has liberated, the slaves, 
pour out of the city walls and start raising their hands to touch her and to get close to her and screaming Misa, which means mother, saying mother, 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 and they lift her up and exalt her like she is a goddess. And she's associated with so many of these goddesses that we can look all the way back to uh, to uh, Mother Earth as Gaia or uh, or any of those ancient religions that carry a, a an earth goddess who gives life to us all. But how do we marry that to a, uh, to a hero's journey? And how do we take a goddess, how do we take someone who is, uh, you know, if you look back at what people are saying about her in Westeros, they're talking about her as though she is a mythical figure. And Jorah's like, I can't even believe you're real. And we can't even believe she's real. How do we take that and bring it back down to earth and make it a hero that we can root for. We have to give her incredible trials. And what's so interesting, there's this conflict between the fact that she gets likened to fertility goddesses and mother goddesses, but she herself is not fertile, at least according to what we believe at this point. So there's this fascinating tension, I think, in how we get to portray this woman in a very... uh, a, a very hostile time to be a woman taking power and becoming the most powerful force to contend with on the show. Yeah. And there is now, I think you're, you're drawing out the conflict that I think I want to go to a element of the show as a piece of evidence, if you will permit me to pivot slightly. Absolutely. So just a quick recap, we've uncovered three layers of Daenerys, Daenerys, the humanist, Daenerys, the hero, and then Daenerys, the goddess. And I think what we are seeing now is these three character uh, traits. These, these, these archetypes, these, yeah. Yeah, the, the, this design to Daenerys have now started coming into direct conflict. Yes. And when we see that conflict, I'm going to go to season seven, episode five, East Watch. Now, I've been on the record really rough and harsh on Game of Thrones season seven. Me too. And uh, we did almost a whole episode about it way back when. And I'm going to say that one of the things that season seven did really well was bring out the conflicts of Daenerys's character archetypes and have them start to bump heads. Um, Even though some of the plot points were silly and nonsensical, but the actual conflict happens here. When Daenerys has defeated a combination Lannister and Tarlay army. She has her dragons and Dothraki, and she says, I'm going to offer you guys a choice. You can bend the knee, or I can kill you. In a scene that's a direct parallel to several of the scenes throughout her sort of coming up through the show, it's her MO to offer a choice to conquered or liberated armies, like the Unsullied or even the Dothraki in season one, she says, hey, if you want to leave, you can go and nobody will harm you, but if you follow me, I'll give you everything you ever wanted. Here she does the exact opposite. She says, you can follow me and I will be your queen, or you can leave and I'll kill you. And in that choice, the uh, the lord that she conquered, Lord Tarlay, the father of Sam Tarlay, father of Dickon Tarlay, <laughs> Dickon, <laughs> um, says, I won't bow to you. And Daenerys goes, okay, you made your choice. And she has her dragons burn them alive. 
that would be Lord Tarlay and his son Dickon, and everyone that hadn't already bent the knee bends the knee. This set a ripple wave throughout the digital Game of Thrones nerd sphere of, is Daenerys finally becoming evil? Is she becoming a bad character? Or a mad queen? Yeah, is she going to be set up to be the villain? I think it's a fair question. So I think the first layer of breaking down this scene to really discuss is, why does this burning over other burnings that she's burnt people alive before, Right. What makes this one seem more mad queenish where the other one seemed like justice? And I would argue it's because she's so shown clemency to the conquered before. And this was the first time where she hasn't in all of the other burnings. These are people that wouldn't bow people that thought that they could manipulate her people who did manipulate her. These were defeated prisoners of war and in any sense, um, you know, we have an intuition. We see this in earlier in the show when um, Lord Bolton goes to Rob Stark and says, let me start torturing Lannister soldiers. And he says, no, I'm not going to start torturing soldiers because that gives them license to do the same. We see that there is some semblance of how you treat a prisoner, though they're prisoners and get treated poorly. We also know from this show that high-born people are important hostages, people that you can trade, people that you can barter for money, supplies, or influence. The fact that she you know, skips over those and goes right to burning these two lords, I think is a different type of Daenerys burning her enemies because she burns the defeated. And it's, you know, it's interesting that it's, kind of her first act after she set after she sets foot in Westeros. You know, this entire time that she has been moving through Essos and into Dragonstone, she's been offering these same kinds of choices, but with mercy and clemency, like you said. Uh, and the second she sets foot on Westeros, almost as if its soil is corruptive and like Cersei's, you know, attitude has bled into the air there, she starts to change her tune. And that's scary. And she even says, you've heard things about me, but those are propaganda lies from Cersei. I'm not those things. I'm not this vicious savage. I am your humanistic queen. By the way, bend the knee or I kill you. And that is a direct conflict of the next layer that Daenerys may be going into, which is Daenerys the humanist, Daenerys the hero, Daenerys the goddess. Now we have Daenerys the conqueror. And I'd say before her conquests were more liberations, before she showed clemency and lenience, even though she is violent and comfortable with violence, She's comfortable with murder and killing and war. These are things that she's tolerant to. Once she gets to Westeros, once she gets that close to the Iron Throne, the thing that she has wanted this entire time, we see another layer by which she's filtering her decisions, which is now I must rule in Westeros, and to rule in Westeros means to rule by fear. The outgrowth of that philosophically is to say, in order to truly rule this continent of Westeros, she has to abandon the humanism. 
Right. And that's, that's unfortunate. Now, we only have to look back to the history of Westeros to know that sometimes, yes, conquest is necessary to take the throne, but it can, in Aegon's case, uh, give way to hundreds of years of peace and prosperity for the, uh, for the Seven Kingdoms. And so we can't say just on this one act that Daenerys is going to become a villain based on it, because very certainly this is just a means to an end. This is a way to get on the throne and be the uh, beloved and good queen that we all want her to be. But we have to stay mindful of these changes in character. And I've talked before about how I don't necessarily think season seven was true to character. I don't think it was particularly responsible with some of the changes that it made in character, but we have to recognize that this happened and we have to hold Daenerys, our beloved queen to the highest standard. If we want her to sit on the iron throne. Okay. A few points. Um, as I like what you're going there, but, but a few counterpoints, I don't necessarily think having her burn, burn the Tarleys is a betrayal of her character or bad writing. Sure. Quite the opposite. I think it's interesting and intriguing and probably some of the best written scenes in season, in season seven. So I would say that I would also say that if Daenerys has to abandon humanism as a governing philosophy in the war to win the iron throne, it doesn't mean that she will abandon it once she gets the iron throne. Exactly. But if it does, and I think what we're seeing here is if it takes ruthlessness to conquer, if it takes abandoning the core principles that got you to where you are, is it worth the conquest is the question. Or rather, does power always corrupt? Are we seeing a mirror into our own system where people who get involved and want power for the noblest and right reasons end up doing terrible and despicable things in the name of their own power. Are we seeing that corrosive element like wear into Daenerys where she's now at the point where she's like, you're either with me or I'm going to kill you. Right. And if that is her stance, it may win her the iron throne, but she may lose her humanity in the process. Exactly. And it begs the question, you know, between this, this war of ideologies, if the two ideologies that are warring are a Dark Age ideology and the Renaissance ideology, uh, you know, can the Renaissance win? Can the rebirth of humanism stamp out the, uh, the ruthless and cold Dark Age uh, of Circe? Is it possible for us to bring this renaissance in without getting consumed by darkness ourselves? And this is why we fans were concerned when we saw this. This is why Jon Snow was concerned about it. Tyrion and Varys were concerned about it. Because they see a new level of ruthlessness in Daenerys that scares them. That wasn't there before. And it should scare them. It should scare all of us. Right? It should scare every single one of us fans of the show because that literally happens in the real world where people end up making ruthless decisions to support their own power when they started from a core of wanting to do good in the world. And that is a, a true journey that us humans have to go with and have to contend with. And if humanism is the way in which we're going to govern, because 
even though, you know, as we discuss humanism as a philosophy, that is the education system that we live in, in that the colleges that we go to are all humanistic. That is the principles by which um, our capitalist economy is structured around, that people pursuing their own interest is actually good because people are good. So when they uh, when they pursue their own interest, good things happen to the economy. And that is the basis by which our republic and our constitution is built around, enlightenment humanistic principles. And what this show is doing in season seven is saying, under the surface of that is power for power's sake and be careful. And I think that to me is one of the, the, the best parts of season seven is that it showed this ruthless side of Daenerys that we all knew she was capable of ruthlessness, but to her prisoners, that is a new dynamic and right. we'll see where it goes. I don't know where it's going to go. Right. Yeah, but, but I think you're right. We knew she was capable of ruthlessness and violence and power, but we did not believe she was capable of cruelty. Exactly. And that's the change. Seeing individuals, not as individuals, but as an impediment to our power, and hence they must be destroyed. Woof. You know, we come down to, in season seven, the penultimate season, uh, three characters who we know have pretty much plot armor who are going to be our last men standing, if if anybody is, and that's Daenerys, Tyrion, and Jon Snow. We talked about Tyrion's philosophy last week, especially as a foil to Jon Snow and his uh, stoic ideals and his his rule-based moral system. And Danny is such an interesting uh, third wheel to this, right? Because we know that she has set these frameworks for herself that create rules, that create moral absolutes, that create right and wrong in her mind and, and lead her to these passionate campaigns of justice. Uh, but without Tyrion to temper those passions, uh, she can go off the rails. And now that we've seen Jon Snow enter the picture with her, she has a model of a rule-based moral system that is unwavering, that is difficult to change, that doesn't adapt, but may be an interesting influence on her. And so as obvious as it may sound, these, this three-headed dragon, if you will, this three-pronged uh, ruling body of these, these different uh, uh, ruling philosophies, I think may be one of the most interesting and uh, and exciting dynamics to watch as they sort of compete for what way is the most ethical to rule. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we're going to see it come to a head and we just have to wait. Sigh. Another fucking year. Just another year. Yeah, just till 2019, which is so difficult and so tough. So do you have anything else to say about Daenerys Stormborn of House Targaryen, the first of her name, the unburnt, the queen of the Andals, the Rhoynar and the first men, queen of Marine, Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, protector of the realm, lady regnant of the Seven Kingdoms, breaker of chains and mother of dragons? On this Easter Sunday, the last thing I'd like to say is uh, I hope everyone out there enjoys listening to this podcast as much as I enjoy making it. And whether you keep the old gods or the new, whether you are Jewish, Christian, or Muslim, I love you guys and have a happy, happy, whatever spring festival you like to celebrate. Eventually, Game of Thrones will come back. And um, until next time, 
She is risen. Be kind. Be kind.